This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to a Hoosock podcast. I am your host today, Joe, with my Joe host. Good evening. And my co-host. Good evening. That is Joseph and Colm, uh, because neither of them would actually introduce themselves. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing the iconic Mars Week. So, uh, without further ado... Spoiler warning. Spoiler warning for Pyramids of Mars, any classic who we decide to talk about, Waters of Mars, and probably most of the Tenth Doctor's era, mm -hmm. along with... Along with the end of time. Uh, yeah, obviously the yeah. end of time, and probably... Any amount of Time Lord Victorious um, expanded universe content that any of us have actually read, given Christian is not here. <laughs> Which might therefore be limited. <laughs> That's true, but still, whatever. Um, and let's begin, in that case, with Pyramids of Mars, uh, considered one of the classic uh, Fourth Doctor episodes. The Pyramids of Mars features the Doctor going back, uh, the Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith, uh, going back to uh, old Priory House in um, 19, like pre-World War One England, and discovering an ancient conspiracy uh, of, of like a few people and robot mummies uh, about this ancient Assyrian alien, Sutek the Destroyer, who is immeasurably powerful, immeasurably clever, and wanting to kill everyone. And that's basically the plot. Um, uh, there's also a pyramid on Mars for about 10 minutes at the end. Yeah. Uh, and there's missiles, robot mummies, a guy getting squished with his neck between the, the mummy's mm -hmm. breastplates. Uh, that's a very, that's a very funny scene. scene yeah. Uh, and a bunch of people ramming their heads into shields and force fields that don't quite have good enough special effects yet. Uh, but yeah, Pyramids of Mars. Um, and to start with the very opening shot of the episode, I think this is kind of iconic, though it depends. Uh, they repeat this same style of shot for four, at least a few times. I think they did it in Ark of Space as well. But you just have him like brooding. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was it was a very interesting shot because it was just uh, Tom Baker in the TARDIS with his hat down, just contemplating whatever whatever is actually like happening. Yeah. He's being very serious. Mm. Uh, I like Serious Four. I mean, I love Comedy Four, but I mm. also really like Serious Four. Yeah, I agree. Serious Four is excellent. Uh, I love contrasting it with Sarah Jane uh, taking absolutely no prisoners with him mm -hmm. and just mocking him she relentlessly. She love Serious 4. No, no. Oh like... no, I think Sarah Jane does love Serious 4, but she loves mocking Serious 4. Also That's, true. Yeah, that is, that is valid yes. to be honest, because, I mean, she starts this episode by literally mocking Serious 4 in Queen Victoria's dress. Not Queen Victoria's dress, that is incorrect. In the dress <laughs> of Victoria the Companion for Second Doctor. I uh, understood that as Queen Victoria's dress. No, no Sarah... That's what Sarah Jane thinks it is. Yeah, ah, because okay. that's why she says, oh, I hope Albert wasn't wearing it, because that's a reference there. But it is actually the dress of uh, Victoria Waterfield, or is that the last name of the actress? No, it is Victoria Waterfield. The actress is Deborah Watling. There we are. There I we are. got the WATs. Uh, Victoria yes. Waterfield. Um, oh, it's been too long since I've watched Evil of the Daleks, evidently. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I always love a reference to uh, my third favourite second Doctor companion. Apologies. <laughs> uh, but Jamie and Zoe are kind of above you, Victoria. I love you, though. Um, I'm sorry. That feels very mean of I me. Mean, Jamie certainly deserves to be above her because yeah. Jamie is wonderful. Jamie. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, when we said any classic who we decide to talk about, we weren't joking. That was serious. <laughs> but yeah, you've got four kind of brooding a bit. You also have this fun implication at the beginning where apparently what seems to be the introduction to the plot at first is the TARDIS is going to unit for some reason. Mm. Uh, and they're going because the Brigadier is calling them in and Sarah is a little, like, just... Uh, and Sarah's like, oh, well, if you want to retire, you can retire. But um, what, what story would have taken place had it not been diverted throughout time? 
This is a good question. I don't mm. know what follows on directly from this, whether they do then get back from Unit. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I mean, they, they, they foreshadowed that at the end of the episode, that, you know, the, the Priory did burn down, and that's what gave rise to the actual Unit headquarters. There. Oh, okay, they do have... The next episode is Android Invasion, which I've never seen, but it does that have... The unit, unit yes. but it does not actually have the brigadier who was mentioned by name in this episode, <laughs> yeah. because Nicholas Courtney was not available at the time. Um, which, classic Who production issues. Uh, as though that doesn't happen today. Today with Who, yeah. Exactly. I wasn't thinking of Who in this case. Uh, I was... Never mind, but there was a cut <laughs> episode of His Dark Materials I will never forgive certain scheduling oh, issues yes. for. <laughs> yes, that, yeah. that was very sad to have. Yeah. Anyway, you've it, the episode starts. They're going back to this priory. You've got some, uh, like people looking around. You've got and the Scarman brothers, Marcus and I want to say idiot, but I think his name is actually <laughs> Lawrence. Yes, it, idiot works. I mean, I, I I actually kind of feel bad for him because throughout the entire thing, he's like. Even though he knows it isn't his brother and the doctor has been telling him that it isn't his brother, he's been like, my brother, please come back to me. And his brother almost comes back and then mm. kind of... He does get break free yeah. enough to say, I'm Marcus, I'm Marcus. And it's this actual... Because you go in, you already know, okay, well, the doctor said this. There's no way he's going to succeed. And then he gets close to succeeding. And that's just enough to generate that little bit of hope in the audience mm. before he turns around and says, I am Sutek, and strangles him to death. Yeah. Um, which yes. is painful and horrible but it's a wonderful dynamic even if it's not the focus of the episode to run throughout the episode and help make helps to justify four episodes of length because mm. sometimes classic episodes do have a bit too much padding but i think pyramids of mars is aside from all the random shots of them running through the woods very well lengthed um, it is yeah. yeah the running the running through the woods shots were a bit it was a bit overdone but it it was kind of at the beginning, so you mm. kind of give that a bit of leeway there. Yeah. Um, but, like, overall, I thought the pacing of the episode was quite decent because mm. they had specific plot points that came in at specific points that just worked and gelled with the entire episode. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, you also, I mean, there's them as the villains uh, going throughout. You've got quite a few unfortunate victims, namely every human besides Sarah Jane and the Doctor. Um, no, the Doctor's not human. I forgot about that part there. Uh, maybe he's half human. <laughs> or maybe he's timeless child, and that's a human all along. Oh my god. Uh, you know, um, experimentation, that sort of stuff. Who knows? Uh, that moves on to the other villains of the episode, which we're going to actually, before we move on to the interesting one, we're going to talk about the mummies. The robot mummies. Mm. These mummies have, I don't know, they, for some reason, I feel like, I don't know why I think this, but I feel like they've been iconic. I think I owned an action figure of one of them for years before I'd actually seen the episode. And I don't know why, but... Were well, there one of those monsters that always appears, when you've got pictures of groups of fourth Doctor monsters, the mummies are always in, in there. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the mummies are all, they're always there. Uh, I mean... To be frank, they don't really do very much in this episode. Sutak is the villain. The mummies just go around and strangle people and mm. crush them with their breastplates. It is, uh, it is quite... Like, their yeah. big, very chunky, outwards, pointed breastplates, <laughs> which they have for some reason. Yeah. I guess purely for strangling people between them, but they, they could they could just go for the neck. It's, it, it's it was, a very yeah. strange decision. Yeah. Yes. For, for the majority of those episodes, they are literally just doing grunt work. And oh, yeah. And oh, everything like that. And I like, mean, they always just do grunt work. That is mm. their entire purpose. Uh, it's fun when the fourth Doctor gets to dress up as one, behind-the-scenes trivia. That is That was Tom Baker in the suit. The director Excellent. forced Tom wow. Baker to do it. Tom Baker hated every second of it. <laughs> uh, Why? I would have loved that. It was very hot and uncomfortable, and he was like, this is beneath me. Because uh, Tom Baker would have a bit of an attitude sometimes, as mm. much as we love the guy. Uh, and then uh, his lines actually are dubbed over by him later, I believe, because the voice does not come through the suit. No, it wouldn't. It, yeah, because it's it's layers of cloth, just that, yeah. like, it did just muffle it. Oh, yeah. Um, and then we have, and this is probably where we're going to spend the bulk of the episode speaking about, but Sutek. I love Sutek. Oh. I, I like Sutek as mm. well. Your evil is my good. Mm. I, fa I found it where quite, I tread yeah. dust and destruction is left in my wake. Mm. 
I find that good. I can't do a Sutek voice well. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm trying not to whisper too quietly. I would whisper more. Uh, but, but, but we're actually recording this, so that's pretty difficult. And also, I'm just... I don't even remember the exact quote now, do I? It's a fake fan. <laughs> and I put it on my emails and everything. Exactly. At the beginning of all of I read the track. email too this time. This time? <laughs> I put that in there solely what for the purpose that? of you getting at me, in spite of actually you? reading all the emails. I put that in there just because I knew you would you would seize upon that moment. Honestly, it took you a second more than I was expecting. There was like a moment of realisation there that you were like, Wait a minute, you don't read the emails? I felt it was funnier to add the dramatic pause. <laughs> See, well, this is, all, this is how fake we all are. Now yes. we're explaining how we do comedy as we do it. <laughs> Oh, it's just meta-commentary, that's all this yeah. is. We, we, we analyse everything in the mm, meta. Yeah, but Sutek is... I mean, in spite of the janky design of his actual head, mm -hmm. Sutek is, by all accounts, an incredible villain, uh, and one who is absolutely terrifying. Mm. He's he's one of the only, like, villains in, like, oh, like classic Who that I can remember, like, absolutely bringing the Doctor to his knees. The other one is... Um, Oh, what was his name? He was in the the three doctors. Okay. Omega. Omega. Yeah, exactly. Omega. Like those. Are the you only... shall face the dark side of my mind. <laughs> yeah, like those are the only two that I can remember. Like absolutely, just taking the doctor down to absolutely nothing. Mm. Yeah, I mean Omega is a lot more camp than Sutek is, is. To be fair, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, we love Omega for that. But no, Sutek is one of the rare. Um, uh, one of the biggest issues sometimes in Doctor Who, in my opinion, is the Doctor doesn't always fear the villains enough, and that makes it pretty difficult for an audience to fear the villains, because the Doctor has to have always have a solution. And I think if the Doctor feared every villain, it would just make the Doctor look like a coward, of course, mm, and true. not really work. But when it comes around to having a villain, the, the Doctor seems genuinely powerless against, that is smarter than the Doctor, that is stronger than the Doctor, that is tougher than the Doctor, that every time they try a plan, the villain, they make progress, but the villain sets it back and they have to sort things out. It feels very much more back and forth, dramatic, and incredibly tense in a way that a lot of classic Who episodes just aren't, because Sutek always feels a step ahead of the Doctor, and that is until the very end, but that is unnerving. Mm. I mean, the, the one that got it from me was when they tried to blow up the launch pad. Mm. Um, and it was like, okay, so they're going to blow up the launch pad and the rocket's going to be kaput and everything like that. And no, the, he, uh, Sutek is just controlling the blast with his mind. Yeah, of Sutek. Course, he, of course he can do that. He can just... Sutek is yeah. just powerful enough to quite literally, from a prison in ancient, like in the tombs of an ancient pyramid, just reach out with his mind and just stop the explosion and that's wow i mean he, he reverses time on the bullet being shot into skarman earlier by by the poacher who's only named after he dies and i don't remember nor do i care about his name in all honesty he exists for he exists for the comedic scene of being choked out between two breastplates oh there's that <laughs> and i think he also exists to demonstrate the force field and that's it yes and uh. to provide the explosives Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. His house being there justifies, oh, this is why there's explosives and uh, trap, oh, that sort of thing. Oh, I guess the trap only appears in the one scene that he's in as well, so it doesn't matter. But, you know, whatever. He, he's vibing and then he dies. Uh, F. But <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> you know, Sutek has just this level of power that you don't see very often in classic films where Sutek can and does bring the Doctor to his knees, literally. Uh... Sutek forces every stop to be pulled. Every kind of thing moves out of the way because every plan they try, just from the beginning with the trapped time corridor uh, to Sutek reversing the bullet, like plotting, planning, sorting everything out and just making everything go and then discovering, because the Doctor's plan to stop Sutek stops Sutek at first, but then hands Sutek the key to his release. And that is quite concerning in a way, uh, just to see Sutek exploit the Doctor so much. And when I say key to his release, I mean this very literally, the TARDIS key. Indeed. Uh, but suddenly it's like, you the moment you finally think the Doctor has won, you've disrupted Sutek's plans and actually stopped him from building the rockets and escaping, 
the t- the stakes turn again. The tables turn a lot in this episode. Uh, and that makes it really tense and engaging in a way that a lot of classic Who isn't because it's a bit... I mean, I love classic Who, obviously, but it can be a bit slow sometimes. And that's mm. not always a bad thing. I love slow stories, but sometimes it can be slow in a bad pacing kind of way. But the Pyramids of Mars just isn't. It gets the pacing perfect. Mm. Uh, but that is Sutek. Uh, the other thing is, uh, alongside the man who never would, we have the woman who absolutely does. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. In a heartbeat. Sarah Jane with a gun. Uh, to quote Freya with minor expletives, I'd say minor, major expletives removed, <laughs> yeah. because we can't say that. Um, God, she's so bleeping hot um and yeah uh congratulations Freya. you've been hashtag called out again <laughs> this happens a lot um but exactly. you know, she deserves it a lot yeah mm-hmm. i mean not only does Freya, very quotable yeah not only does um sarah jane just absolutely like say lawrence take a gun grab a gun uh she also goes out of her way to be a crack shot. Yeah, exactly. I did not know that side of Sarah Jane existed yeah, at all. That shot is made over quite a distance to a very small target. Mm-hmm. And she hits it first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's like, wow, because this side to Sarah Jane, as far as I'm aware, does not exist in any other episodes. No. Or even, like, any other series that she's yeah. in at all. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, in uh, Stolen Earth Journey's End, as I said, spoilers for Ten Zero, though you probably weren't <laughs> expecting it so early. Um, uh, this is the Doctor, just probably not the one you were expecting. <laughs> I mean, in that, yeah, she... She, she explicitly she... calls out Torchwood, like, too many guns. Yeah, like, exactly. Sarah, you may not... You don't shoot people. You never shot a person... But are the guns the issue? You're, you're a sniper. <laughs> but, but, I mean, in, at that same time, in that episode, she literally did set up, like, a practical bomb to explode mm. if Jack had cracked the uh, warp star. That is true. Yeah. Uh, so, like, like, yeah, it's, it's quite funny. So maybe it's not that Sarah Jane hates guns, it's that she doesn't like inflicting violence on people, mm. but she loves massive explosions and reckless violence. Exactly. The <laughs> so, is she a Sontaran? I was about to make the exact same joke. Is she a Sontaran? Sarah Jane is a Sontaran. She was first introduced We're in practiced. The Time Warrior, the episode that first introduced oh, the Sontarans. That's very good. Is Sarah Jane secretly a Sontaran clone all along? This is a question. Question we should be asking ourselves. Wow. <laughs> wow. The, yeah. The, la- the last Santoran in Sarah Jane Adventures makes so much more sense now, considering that she is a Santoran there. Yeah. Yes. It's wow. when they defeat the other one and send it home, then there is the last Santoran there. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, We've got it. We Brilliant. It. <laughs> we have finally cracked it. The uh, Santorans finally gl- gained the the ability of the Slitheen just to have human suits. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, but the Santorans are small enough that they don't have to fart while in them. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's the size thing, anyway. But, yeah, no. Pyramids of Mars, still widely considered classic, uh... And, you know, it's great fun, great time. Because we're going to be moving on to another episode now. That's less fun. Less fun (laughs) and more fun in a way. Uh, One of the episodes, one of the few episodes left in Doctor Who that can still terrify me. uh, The Waters of Mars. Uh, About 50 years from when the episode was broadcast. More like uh, 30 years now. Oh, God. No, 2059. It scared me when it's... it's oh, no, it's only 40. It's 40. It's yeah. 40. Okay. Yeah, uh, it, it scared me when it said that Adelaide Brooke was born in 1999, and I was like, okay, cool. I was born in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2001 here. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, we're all children. Um, <laughs> no, but set in uh, the near future, humanity has started Bowie Base 1. The bright and shining, hopeful future of colonization across the stars is beginning... And what's that dripping noise? It's uh, death. Unfortunately, some their uh, colony is affle- um, is slated to have everyone die on the day the Doctor arrives. And the Doctor knows this is a fixed point in time and does not want to stay. But as the people start to become infected by 
the best take on zombies I have ever seen, mm. uh, because they are, for all intents and purposes, zombies, the flood, yeah, anyway. That's true. But yeah. the best I've ever seen, it just, things devolve into absolute horror, tragedy, and above all else, the breaking of the Doctor. Uh, God, this episode is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was one of the first times that I, I can remember, like, David Tennant as the Doctor, like, completely shifting in the way that he portrayed uh, the Doctor. Like, the whole the whole scene of, like, I am the last Time Lord and the laws of time will obey me. Like, that scene Ooh, just... I mean, those scenes are iconic. Uh... I'm going to start, actually, a bit earlier than that, though the Time Lord Victorious stuff we are obviously going to come on to, including the fact that the term Time Lord Victorious, I kind of think doesn't flow as nicely as it should, and I, I don't know why. It's just the term Time Lord Victorious in general. It's like, oh yes, this is the Time Lord Victorious medium. Like, if you're doing stuff pre-Time War, this term doesn't apply anyway. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that just feels odd about the fact that this these words are being scattered throughout space and time that when they really shouldn't be. They're not... I mean, they're nice words. Like, and the Tenth Doctor's declaration of being I am the Time Lord Victorious is great, but I don't know. Anyway, let's start with Bowie Base 1 itself. Yeah. The Mars Base, this bunch of domes, a lot of running, uh, probably the need for bikes. <laughs> <laughs> or just, you know, a robot like Gadget that is... Gadget, Gadget! That is just, gadget, uh, gadget. you know, super-powered at the end. Yeah, like uh... A million miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, there's an ABBA song I'm really wanting to sing right now. I don't know which one this is. I can't remember, <laughs> but like, there's just those vibes. I think it's Super Trooper. Um, that, that's the vibes I got. I don't know. You said like it's super fine. powered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 uh, I, get I get that. Like, that I, is the Super Trooper. Yeah, but then there's like a million what? miles an hour. Is that a line in the song? I don't know. Anyway, it just popped into my what? head. <laughs> what? 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 Uh, we're joining mediums here. That's all that is. <laughs> yeah, we're joining mediums. There's uh, references to the end of Doomsday. Who knows what else? Exactly. Uh, also, uh, Last of the Time Lords, if you prefer Dr. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> depends on your personal preference, really. I like Dr. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, you've got the base. It's, um, I mean, like, big sets, probably a reused airbase, knowing how filming and stuff works mm. is what they'd use for this kind of thing. Uh, but it's impressive and well done, and then we get onto the crew, these, a number of characters. I tried to remember the exact number, but I don't remember how many of them there actually are, uh, like eight? So there were two botanists, which were the ones that the Doctor didn't initially meet. Then there was the captain, then there was the vice-captain, and then there was Gemma Chan, the... Uh, no, give me two seconds. One, two, three, four, seven. five, seven. six, seven, seven eight... Eight? Nine. Nine? Nine? Uh, you've got Adelaide herself, yes. Ed, Yui, Mia, Maggie, Tarek, Andy, Steffi, Roman. That's nine. That is nine. I don't know which two I missed. I, I, I know I missed Yuri because I was thinking of the guy that controlled Gadget and Yuri were the same person. Yeah, no, Roman and Yuri, not the same. Yeah. Uh, no, namely because uh, just the drop, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I mean, they do an excellent job, in my opinion, of establishing these nine as... A likable group of characters to start. I mean, mm. outside of Andy, who never really comes across well, to be honest. Uh, Tarak doesn't come across that well either, but they're the first to be infected. I was going to say, Andy doesn't really get a chance to come across yeah. well because he literally yeah. gets. They are the first thing. ones gone. Yeah, exactly. um, Maggie comes across all right in the brief moments before she's infected, and then she's infected. Uh, mm -hmm. But. But, like, they actually establish, like, enough of, like, a character with all of them mm. that you genuinely feel bad when they get infected. Oh, yeah. Like, I always felt bad when, I, I forget his name, when the, the, vice, cap, the vice captain... Ed? Ed. Mm. When he's in the rocket and he gets hit with the water, I always felt bad for him and when he, like, actually blows off the rocket. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, like, sacrificed himself... Uh... I guess, you know, there's all that sort of stuff, because they they start by introducing you to this crew, 
and they t- they begin building up you liking them and then when the doctor first meets them you start with them from the doctor's perspective who are these people and then the doctor shifts to a different perspective you lose that because the doctor now knows who they are and then the episode gives you that knowledge again which is a really good choice because it very solidly tells you this story from the doctor's point of view without the need to say anything and i really like the obituary sequence yeah uh as like as repetitive in a way it is, it drums in exactly, oh god, this is what's going to happen here. Yeah. Uh, like, that's the first thing that you see when you meet every single one of these characters. The second the Doctor realises it, you see their obituaries. Like, that says a lot about, yes. like, what's going down. What's this kind of episode is going to be, and it helps to build this this dread, this tragedy that I am a massive fan of. See, I agree, but I think it happens maybe a scene or two too early, because... It's the very first thing you get. So for me, it kind of feels like you don't even know who these people are. You don't care yet. And you already know they're going to die. Which I, mean, I suppose, in a way, mm. is what they were aiming for and does work. Yeah, I'd note hand, that, but also note the scene in the beginning where the, the no trespassers, the very first thing that happens, obviously, is, that is true, you've yeah, got exactly. that introductory scene to them before the Doctor meets them. And you have all these scenes before the Doctor knows who they are. And then it gives you the information exactly as the Doctor gets it. And that's what I think is effective. Because the Doctor starts out, you know, caring for them in the way the Doctor cares for all humans, but not massively, especially so. And as the episode goes on, you and the Doctor become more and more invested in these characters, but the Doctor has to leave and let them die. Mm. And that's what makes the Doctor's decision to turn around at the end so powerful, in my opinion. Yeah, Because it it gives you the information as the Doctor gets it. It keeps you with the Doctor's frame of mind at all times. You are the little voice in the Doctor's head that is screaming to go along with Adelaide, turn around and save them. Mm. And then he does. And then you're like, no, why the hell did you do that? You're not supposed to do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ah, uh, yeah. No, it's it's amazing because it it like it does like I I agree. You don't really know the characters a hundred percent when you know they're going to die, but as you get to know the characters, you have in the back of mm. your mind they are going to die today. Yes, all of them are going to die a very yes. very painful death. I mean, like, the only ones I can say I solidly didn't care for, Andy, because the first one to go, you get basically nothing from him. Mm-hmm. Andy's plot purpose in the plot is to bite into a carrot and transform. Uh, uh, no, wash the carrot first. Oh, yeah. Then yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you've got Tarak, who I don't remember any of his purpose other than to be the person. You get that horrifying scene of the drench yeah, uh, with exactly. Andy just standing over, drenching him in water. Oh, my God, that scene gave me nightmares. Yeah. I mean, Speaking of the flood, yeah, exactly. Um, the ancient parasitic virus imprisoned beneath the surface of Mars by the ice warriors millennia ago in a glacier, and they are awake. Um, that's the wrong episode, <laughs> but you know, uh, oh, you know, it's they make sort of probably the most scary villain that we get to see in all of Doctor Who, in a way. Mm. Uh, I specify that we can see for the obvious reason of Midnight existing, um, where fear of the... uh, I mean, the fears of Midnight are fears of the unknown and uh, the dread about um, uh, humans being absolutely horrible. Uh, But the flood are absolutely terrifying. Just one drop water. I mean, even the transformation is actually scary because, like... I like I always remember the the scene like first watching it when it was like uh came out until like 2009 when I was like mm-hmm. 9 or 10. Yeah. Okay. And like seeing just like in the background just having Andy just like absolutely start convulsing and yeah. then just you just see the cracks around his lips and you're yeah. like, what? as it just slowly looks up. Yeah. Um we talked about this in a previous podcast, Resurrection of the Daleks. Spoiler alert. But um <laughs> uh in this episode, the first reveal you get of Davos is just him ominously in the background in the prison cell. That was really effective. They do the same thing here. They don't focus on the flood transformation. You may not even notice it, uh, but most people will. You will sh- shift your eyes slightly to what's that movement there, and you realize, oh god, what the hell is happening? And it does it the same for Maggie as Yuri is talking when uh, mm-hmm. she's in the prison, uh, and so oh god. Water. 
So much water. Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. This just the transformation, the nature of the flood, the designs, the cracked mouths. Uh, it's so basic, but it's so. Effective. Yeah, you've got. I mean, it's a lot of very very small things. The cracked mouths, uh, black lipstick. Uh, um, what are those contact lenses for the yeah, white eyes? The uh, all those things. Uh, a bunch of like drips and taps loosened throughout them, but it's it makes this terrifying combination. And the fact that. It looks incredibly painful, and yet they spend 90% of the episode smiling. Yeah. yeah. And that is terrifying. terrifying. Yeah, the smiling. Jesus. Mm. Or even, like, the scream that they, like, emit. Like, that is, like, yeah. blood curdling stuff. Oh my god, yeah, no. Absolutely horrifying. The Flood just, oh. They are fantastic villains. Uh, I, I know it sounds like all of us are like absolutely scared, like out of our minds of them, but like they're such good bad guys that mm. you are scared out of your yes. mind. Yes, yes, they do that very well. Um, I mean, Waters of Mars has been one of the episodes I've rewatched out of my favorite ten episodes. On the ratio of how much I like it to how often I rewatch it, mm. has probably been among the least, uh, the smallest for that ratio, just because of how terrifying it is uh, and how difficult it is to go through the flood. And I love this, especially with the scene just of them at the ice field discussing it, this ancient kind of horror. They are some of the few aliens in Doctor Who. And I I mean, I'm a big fan, not of Lovecraftian horror, but of cosmic horror. Joseph Beacon mm. attests to this. Uh, and just this overriding fear of the unknown, fear of space, because I think space is both beautiful and dangerous at the same time, and I think Waters of Mars gets that across perfectly, and it's perfect for me in so many ways, just because this absolutely alien intelligence, which is intelligent, which is patient, which is scary, it gets around, it gets through, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. The thing I loved about it was how it actually happened. It literally happened on a broken filter. Yeah. Like, it's such a simple thing yeah. that caused so much, like, actually, like, terrible stuff to actually happen. Yeah. That, like, it could it could realistically happen at any time. Yeah. That's one thing I love. I, I agree. That's a really great moment. Just one small thing, one broken filter, and boom, everything's going to, well, down. Everything's going to hell. Yeah. Uh... Oh god, but let's address this episode's companion and native girl boss, Adelaide Brooke. Yes. What a queen, what a badass, and I'm saying this on behalf of our dear Christian. Morning, uh, did someone hear him? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, Adelaide, what are your thoughts on Adelaide? I think she's amazing, like, as a character, because, like... The, the the thing, like, I like about Doctor Who Companions is, like, they initially start as, like, quite dependent on the Doctor for their character and for a lot of things, but then, like, develop out of that. Um, Adelaide just starts as, like, directly being, like, the, the, uh, being, like, the Doctor, like, I'm in charge here. Mm. Like, you, you do not have the power in this relationship. Yeah. I, I uh, control this. And, like, I love that dynamic between the two. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it is... Oh, uh, Joseph? I really like that, like, most of the characters in Doctor Who you're supposed to like are played as fun or funny. She is completely serious the whole time. She is there to do it. But also sometimes you just get her wonder at the universe and why she's actually there and you still really like her yeah. even though she's serious the whole time she's serious but also you can tell very obviously that she cares about her team she cares about the people under her they develop a very good side to her of that you've got obviously the scenes of her and the Dalek and speaking of her not being fun I'm just going to say the Doctor Doctor Fun. Yeah, it is a fantastic line. Oh my god! Um, and it's—I mean—the line itself is good. To be fair, it's David Tennant's delivery of the line <laughs> it, that it, is yeah. the so gap perfect. Doctor and fun, and just the sad way he says fun. fun. <laughs> it's just like this. Oh my god! <laughs> why, why else would I be traveling the universe if not for fun? Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, Adelaide is. I mean, absolutely just 
oh, wonderful. Uh, she's doing everything she can to try and stay active and aware during this crisis uh, as to the best of the crew's ability. She is helping to... She's unwaveringly competent, and that is great. And it makes the tragedy of what happens at the end all the more poignant. Yeah. Because, yeah. well... Uh, as a note, when talking about Waters of Mars, uh, I should have probably mentioned this earlier, we haven't exactly discussed it yet, but I'm going to say warning on topic of suicide because uh, Adelaide kills herself. And that is a pretty heavy topic to put in a Doctor Who episode, um, mm. just in general. And, oh my God, is it a powerful moment. Mm. Especially for the reason that she does it, because... She knows what should happen in the future. The Doctor has told her what should happen in the future if she died on Mars. But he's just completely removed her from that context. So she knows what should happen. And the only way that she can ensure what should happen is by killing herself and letting everything go past. Mm. Writing but, history. Yeah, exactly. Keeping history in the best way that she possibly can at the time. Yeah. It's an insane uh, idea. The other thing about Adelaide's death, of course, is, I mean, Mia and Yui in the new timeline survived. The Doctor did have an impact, and it was their stories and stuff that did go on to inspire people in the end, but that was only really done in a sense because Adelaide still died. Uh, mm. And the question then becomes, well, uh, how do the conspiracy theorists react to this? <laughs> yeah. They've teleported to Earth. Demir and Yui say, I mean, it's the first time we ever get it's bigger on the inside said with fear. I love that moment. Mm. Uh, it just shows how much scarier the Doctor is when he's not being fun anymore. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, Gemma Chan delivers that line, like, amazingly. And yeah. Then just Speaking of, Gemma Chan and Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were so many people in this episode that I just completely forgot were in Doctor Who. Like, yeah. um... I forget her name. The, the the second botanist. The oh, the one who plays Maggie. Yeah, um, she, uh, sh that's Sharon Dunk. She was in Dune. She was in Dune. Yeah, she was the she was the I did, medical I, scientist. I, I knew she. I I mean, I, I knew she played like kinds in Dune. Uh, I didn't realize she also played Maggie in this. Yeah, I didn't yeah. recognize her. Oh my god! But now that I see it, I can. Oh my god! Clearly, you don't listen to Christian in the chat. <laughs> no, I don't. You're right. <laughs> Why would I? Yeah, I mean, completely understandable. <laughs> like, he just goes on and on about this big finish cover looking good, and I'm like, okay, cool, yeah. thanks. No, this was one of the occasions he was bullying Issy by going, look, it's the woman from June, and giving him a picture of the flood. <gasps> oh, I, I saw the picture of the flood, but I, I was then just like, oh no, I'm not looking at that. <laughs> <laughs> understandable. It's the flood. Yeah, I don't exactly. like that, the flood. Yeah, um, and then, yeah, obviously, uh, Abigail herself being like it everything in the BBC from, like, Sherlock and so on as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was an amazing cast that they were able to get together before, like, people knew their names, which was brilliant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, it's just, it was, it's a great, like, cast. It's a, And that cast really helps you connect with the characters, and that makes them all, their death, so much more poignant when it happens. Mm. And now... We're going to get on to the thing that everyone here has been waiting for. The one, the only, the source of perhaps many, many, many different stories throughout the Doctor Who universe. Gadget, Gadget the Robot. There we go. Yes. Uh, Excellent. Best character in all of Waters of Mars. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, gadget, Gadget. Um, gadget, Gadget. So, gadget. I mean, you know... Uh, we're for a ro for a funny robot, and I mean, we as the audience love, love funny, funny robots, robots mm. even if the Doctor apparently does not love funny robots. Which is, it, it feels out of character for him, I'm, I'm going to be honest. It's particularly Ten. It feels like Ten should love a funny robot. Yeah, exactly. I think Ten normally likes funny robots, but um, it's given K-9, and that's why also he brings up the exemption for dogs, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think Ten also is just, at this point, he's already going into the waters of Mars at the start of the story. This is post-Donna Ten. Mm. Uh, this is, you know, already going to be Ten at his lowest point. Mm. Uh, which, I mean... Time Lord Victorious, uh, you know, that thing that I was baiting, then Gadget, Gadget, but actually it was the Time Lord Victorious all along. Wow. Oh God, don't ask me to sing. <laughs> what, a, what a dupe right there. Yeah, absolute dupe, really. Uh, cunning, 
masterful. Who knows? Uh, but, you know... Joe's master plan right there. <laughs> yes. You have no idea. <laughs> I am the Joe and you will obey me. Oh my god. Okay. Time Lord Victorious. This is the moment... Because I think Waters of Mars could have actually worked as a tragic episode had the Doctor not turned around and gone away. And you just watch the Doctor left somber, uh, go away and watch the rest die. That could have worked. But it was so much better because he turned around. And because it, this was the moment that the Tenth Doctor just could not refuse the call of humanity asking for help. He never could. Even in the end of time, as he's suffering through one of his lowest moments, realising that this is his death. And we did talk about we were going to spoil end of time earlier, so, you know. Well, Sorry. Uh, yeah. But, and I mean, I, I like that moment, personally. I know. Um, but it's... He never... Even if it struggles and he knows exactly how much it costs him personally, he would never and never does refuse the call of humanity. Mm. And in Waters of Mars... For I think the only real time in Ten's tenure, that is the wrong choice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I agree. Definitely. Uh, because, I mean, you know, he's made the wrong choice a few times. He was uh, rude to Queen Victoria and Tooth and Claw and yeah. ended up establishing an organization that would uh, summon the Cybermen, you know. Exactly. That whole thing there, um, Army of Ghosts Doomsday. That's Ten's fault. <laughs> ten is the yeah. reason Rose got trapped. Yeah. If they'd just been nicer to Queen Victoria... So maybe it was the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. We got rid of Billy Piper and we got Freeman Agman. Oh, well, Freeman Agman was fantastic. Mm, was. But this is some Rose slander, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Christian, I am doing this on your behalf. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but... Um, you know, having, uh, but no, it's, Ten's made the wrong decision plenty of times, but this is the one where him trying to save people is the wrong decision, because ultimately their sacrifice had to happen and had to mean something, and he lowered the meaning of that, uh, and that is, it's a very poignant moment, especially because it's, you, like, get this ultimate tragedy, and then he just strides in through the flames. Mm. It is this incredibly awesome moment and i mean awesome in a biblical sense of awesome not yeah, like awesome like just like the modern diluted version like awesome uh and i mean you know you've got plenty of comparisons with ten and jesus throughout the era which <laughs> yeah, exactly. like i mean there's like religious met um symbolism there i don't think it's a deliberate comparison no it's nor do i think it's a metaphor i just think it's symbolism but it's used very well especially here to illustrate this fallen hero mm. um i think this like also plays into like the juxtaposition so like it might have been like a throwaway like, way line but i don't think anything that russell t davis has ever written has been a throwaway <laughs> line oh yeah um like he had like uh, a line about pompeii and interfering mm. in pompeii and i i always found like that juxtaposition between like the final scene in Pompeii where he goes and saves Christopher Capaldi's, like, family and stuff. Peter Capaldi's. Peter Capaldi's. <laughs> you are missing up 9 and uh, 12. Exactly. Just a perfect combination right there. Um, Peter Capaldi's family. <laughs> okay, wow. I see the reaction there. <laughs> um, the, like, saving Peter Capaldi's family as opposed to saving, like, Bowie Base 1. Like, mm. it's, it's, it's stark in its mm. difference right there. Yeah. It is absolutely stark. Um... And, but it's just a powerful moment. We're going to quickly move on to Ud Sigma, and then we've got questions to do. Uh, Ud Sigma. Yes. Ud, why is he there? Why? That's a question you can ask. I think it's um, Ud Sigma is it's the first time he's signalling the Doctor to come to the Ud Sphere in that start of end of time. Yeah. That's why it's there. Because mm. he's sending a message to the Doctor because all of the universe has been having bad dreams. Mm. Uh, that is the reason why he's there. I sort of feel then like he should be summoning him rather than just standing there ominously. Also, I mean, I think Ud Sigma like brought up the fact that he'd reappear before the death. Um, like, uh, there's a level of um, Ud Sigma just kind of being foreshadowing for the like the Doctor's uh, death. But you know, it's just, I mean, because Ud Sigma says at the end of um, Planet of the Ud. 
the Doctor's song will soon come to an end. Yeah. Yes. And that is what the Doctor sees when he sees Ood Sigma, I think. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, the Ood, they're psychic, but they're basic five. Uh, you know, they can't quite reach that far anyway. I mean, but... it's, it's either that or, okay, just hear me out, okay? Crazy fan theory here. The way that Zack Snyder implemented the Flash in Batman v Superman being like, oh no, I'm too early. Ood Sigma was just doing the same thing, but didn't say, oh no, I'm too early. <laughs> nah, maybe, but I think, in fairness, in this case, it's Ood Sigma is sending a message to the Doctor, yeah. come to the Ood Sphere. Exactly. So, you know, it's great. Uh, and, I mean, it, sen- it sets up possibly yeah. my favourite Christmas episode of, like, Doctor Who. End of time. End of time. I love end of time. It's end so of time good. stands in the chat, yes! <laughs> Oh, everyone who, like, thinks End of Time is, like, not good, get absolutely owned. You should have been on this podcast to say no, because this podcast, and by extension, I'm claiming all of Husok, <laughs> uh, think End of Time is the greatest episode of all time. I mean, I'm, I, I just do it for John Sims. I love John Sims so much. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Doctor Who. I'm just saying, it's oh, yeah. got the master in it. I have to think it's a good episode, at exactly. least. And it has Rassilon, and it has mm-hmm. the Time Lords, and... Well, it doesn't just have the master in it, it has six billion masters in it. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, seven billion. Let's be accurate. Well, nowadays, back then it was six, I think. They used a number. I don't remember. Maybe they used seven. I, uh, I remember that. I remember John Sim saying a very, very large number at the end. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, now, as some uh, podcast questions. Uh, first of all, there's a trolley on Mars. It's going to hit one big person, but if the lever is pulled, it'll hit five little people. <laughs> Does it truly matter if Time Lord Victorious Ten pulls the lever? Well, apparently not. Yes, exactly. <sighs> yes. Apparently, the big person will inevitably put it back on the same tracks as the little people. <laughs> yes. F. Uh, in the end, you'll just hit six people. Mm. Um, cool. Uh... Given that the metal in uh, Bowie Base 1 is explicitly stated to be from Liverpool, is Dan responsible for plastering it? (laughs) No, Dan Dan was a plasterer. He didn't make steel. No, but he could have plastered over the steel. What? What? I don't know what a plasterer does. No, I don't know. That's very obvious. (laughs) I don't know. In fairness, Dan doesn't even seem like a plasterer. Dan isn't a plasterer. He has not been mentioned at all. He's a a fake museum tour guide. Yes. Exactly. Uh, Okay, great. Um, all right. Uh, so the result if, of that question is we do not know. Yeah, we have no <laughs> idea. I'm going to say, though, that maybe Dan decided to go off from plastering and went into the steel business later. <laughs> he just went into steel smelting purely for this one mission. Yeah, well, maybe he knew that he wanted to try and encode a message into the walls. Like, but 13 told him, like, Doctor, don't go Time Lord Victorious on us. <laughs> but, the, but the Doctor never read it because the, the thing was covered in water. Ah, no, no. Um, if Tenant had continued into Series 5, how do you think the Time Lord Victorious concept would have evolved or would it have existed at all? First of all, from a behind-the-scenes perspective, this was never going to happen. Um, Indeed, yeah. But, like, Tenant was always... As most doctors nowadays do, it's the um, classic trout and tried and true, three seasons and done. Tennant did not want to leave the role. If Tennant had thought staying in the role, even a slight amount would be a slightly good idea, he would have stuck with it. Yeah. But he decided to leave, um, and also because... Russell T. Davies was going to move to the States, and we all saw how that ended up turning out, Miracle Day. But, <laughs> you know... Um, like, it wasn't going to carry on going at that point. So, uh, but if he had, would the concept have been evolved? How would it have changed? I think it would have been a lot more, like, questioning, like, the Doctor questioning himself. Because, like, the, the the kind of resolution for the Waters of Mars is, I've gone too far. I, mm. I can't keep on doing this. So I think it would have been uh, the Doctor being a quite more, uh, like, contemplative of, what is his power and what are like the mm. ethics of him actually using his power, which is something that's never really done. Before. I agree. I would also note if season five had existed, Waters of Mars would have been, as originally intended, a Christmas special. Yeah. It was originally meant to be a Christmas special and the end of time was going to be a, just one episode on a New Year's special. Uh, and then they got ability to make end of time a two-parter, which I think greatly helped the episode, mm-hmm. uh, and then ended up... Uh, 
you know, making that the Christmas and New Year special, but they made a lot of references to Christmas for an episode a month before Christmas, which, I mean, given how the Hussock chat has been going, is completely understandable, but also, wow. Well, I mean, it was just getting everyone in the mood for Christmas. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you have your regular Christmas stuff, you have Arthur Christmas, Elf, Love Actually, <laughs> yeah, Waters <fair>. of Mars. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, die Hard, exactly. uh, you know, um, five, like, two more questions quickly now. Uh, should the flood return, or are they a one-hit wonder? I think they could return more than a lot of other gimmick monsters can, but just because of the sheer the nature of them, and like they are effectively zombies, but better, uh, I think they could return, but... I would be very careful as to how they return. Yeah, I hope they don't have like the the weeping angel effect, which is like mm. what I like to call it. Where like the weeping angels in Blink, absolutely scary. In uh, the two parter in season five, time of angels, flesh of stone, like and stone, flesh and stone, like still kind of scary, but bit less so. And then kind of after that, they just get increasingly more normal. Yeah, fair. agreed. I'd say no. I think the only way you could do it would be to do a prequel of the Ice Warriors freezing them on Mars. But I think then you have the problem of you know what's going to happen yeah. when you lose some of the major jeopardy. One of the issues with prequels in general, agreed. Exactly. Uh, so it would have to become a very personal threat to the characters physically involved. Yeah. And I don't think the Flood works as that kind of Understandable. monster. Final question. Does the Doctor hold too much power and what would have happened had Adelaide not committed suicide? This is an interesting one, because the Doctor finally realises that, given the Time Lords are gone, there is no one to hold him to account. Uh, and I think accountability in today's day and age is very important, um, but the Doctor doesn't have that. Mm. So what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, d like, it's, it's such a good question. Like, you, you never know, because, like, the, the whole thing with him, like, changing fixed points in time, like... It could have drastic effects into how humans actually go in the future. Like Adelaide, for all we know, could have possibly gone. No, space is too dangerous. We can't expand outside of Earth. We have to go with what we have on Earth. Or yeah, something like that. Changing the entire effect. Exactly. Mm. Um, yeah. I, yeah, the Doctor does hold a lot of power, and without account. You know, it's. I think one of the great things about this episode is it shows the fallibility of that very nature and why the doctor needs a companion because i think it's the companion who always holds the doctor to account mm. uh the companion serves in many ways as the doctor's conscience when the doctor doesn't always have one mm. that's my thoughts anyway joseph it's true i think it's particularly true for 12 mm. but i think it's partly true for the others i think more with the others the companion is there to make the doctor listen to his conscience mm. rather mm. than to provide it mm. Mm. that's fair because yeah. Particularly 10 and 11 like to ignore their conscience. Yes. Rather than yeah. not having one. Especially oh. at the end. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, all right. And with that, we're going to wrap up here. Join us uh, this Sunday for Village of the Angels, assuming assuming this podcast is out by then. Um, and uh, next week, we will be coming back with... Uh, Night of the Doctor, Day of the Doctor, and the Five-ish Doctors for an anniversary <laughs> spectacular. Um, which... Actually, on the anniversary. On the anniversary, yeah. Oh, oh my God. Uh, you know, it's it's the full combination. It's going to be great. Uh, and there's going to be that podcast, too. And uh, thank you very much. And uh, bye. Farewell. Cheers. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.